October 12th in Babylon. We have this impressive city, ancient Babylon. There's a picture for you to think about for a minute. It had its hanging gardens, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Babylon had the best security system in the world. There was a food supply that was stored up for years. Water supply of the Euphrates River, if you see the river running through the town. And so they had a water, plenty of water, plenty of food. And then to keep out the enemy, there was this impressive fortification of the walls. And Babylon is this rectangularly shaped city, as you can see, surrounded by a broad and deep water-filled moat, and then an intricate system of double walls. The first double wall system encompassed the main city. Its inner wall was 21 feet thick, reinforced by dense towers at 60 feet intervals, 60 foot intervals, while the outer wall was 11 feet thick in width and also had watchtowers. And so then later, Nebuchadnezzar added another double wall system an outer wall that was 25 feet thick, an inner wall 23 feet, east of the Euphrates that ran the incredible distance of 17 miles and was wide enough at the top for the chariots to pass. And the Ishtar gate itself was 40 feet high, and most think that most of the walls were close to that height. Uh, And so you can imagine 40 feet in height and then as thick as they were, this presents a great challenge to any army. And so in light of this security and and beauty, uh, there was this attitude of let's eat, drink, and be merry because we are indefensible. You know, nothing can stop us. And so so keep keep that in mind as we're looking at chapter 5. We've been going through the, the story of Daniel, and all of a sudden there's this jump. When you get to chapter 5, you jump from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar. And you got to keep in mind, as Dale, Dale Ralph Davis, I love his commentary and his succinct way of putting it, he says, this isn't a thorough historical account. This is a tract to nourish Israelite faith. That's what the book of Daniel is. It's a tract to nourish Israelite faith. And so just a quick history is that there's been a few assassinations and there's been a relocation program, okay, so of a few of the guys that were between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. So uh, there was one or two that are assassinated, and then King Nabonidus, he greatly favored the moon god over the main god, which was Marduk, and he fell out of favor with the clergy and the powers that be. And they thought that he was kind of placing too much emphasis on the moon god. And so they had a little relocation program for him. And they sent him 500 miles away into the desert. And then Belshazzar becomes the co-regent or second in charge. That's why he's promising to Daniel in this chapter that he would be third. Because he's number, instead of being second in charge, he's, he can only give him the offer of being third. Okay, so... As you begin this, we're reminded, as this is a, you know, as I said, this is a tract to nourish Israelite faith. But we're told in chapter one, we have this very, very powerful verse. It's the last verse in chapter one, and it says, "Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus." Translation is that you have this unbelievable foreshadowing in the first chapter that wait a minute, Babylon is going to bite the dust long before Daniel does. 
So the chapter, the whole book begins with, man, we are in big trouble. Babylon has come and taken our gods and taken our people. And yet we know from the end of verse, chapter one that Daniel's going to be there until the Medes are taken over and a whole new kingdom's going to be there that Daniel's going to serve under. So we're left with this massive foreshadowing of the big hint and when's the other shoe going to drop? Well, it drops in chapter five. So here we are. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that they had taken that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lord, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And so what you're gonna see here is you're gonna see the ball, the big ball that's taking place, and the gall. And then that's gonna lead to the wall, which is gonna lead to the fall. Okay, so let's start with the ball and the gall. And I'm getting this from the Outline Bible, which is a very very uh, witty in its, its outlines. But the ball and the gall, here you, you essentially have three things going on in these first four verses. You have wine, women, and worship. And you don't have to work at NIH or, or NIST to figure out what's going on here. This is a very sensual party full of drunkenness and sexual immorality, okay? It gets worse. As one commentator put it, you get a sense here of deja vu. Because as you're reading Daniel, you realize, wait a minute, these are the same things that keep repeating themselves. Didn't we already have this in earlier chapters? As Tremper Longman puts it, he puts, though many, many of the faces are different, the genre, the plots, the sins, the props, but the themes of this chapter er echo the earlier ones. And so as I've been saying, in each chapter, there's a contest. Every, the first six chapters of, of Daniel, there's a contest contest in which the God of Israel and the people of God are under attack. And Chemper Longman says the theme of Daniel is, I like something that's real succinct. Here it is. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. In every single chapter of Daniel, we see in spite of present appearances, God is in control. Now, God may be being mocked and the other gods are being toasted and mocked that we triumphed over your God long ago and we are going to take your very holy vessels and use them in a very unholy fashion and say, cheers, cheers, let's cheer because our God is so much greater than the God of Israel. Aren't we special? That's what's going on here, okay? And so, in spite of present appearances, God's in control. And so there's a lot of toasting and a lot of idolatry going on. And it should take you back to chapter 3 where there was another, all the big pomp and, and big important people were all brought out to worship this image that Nebuchadnezzar made that was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. And when you hear the big music begin to play and a big band and all the instruments, get on your knees and pray to this God. In spite of present circumstances, God's in control. Was God not in control in Daniel 3? Yes, he was. And so here he is again. And so this is very similar where the gods of gold and silver, the things that people make are being worshiped, even though they're dumb. They cannot hear, they cannot speak, they cannot do anything. 
They're just gold and silver. And yet these very vessels are brought out to mock God, to spit in his face, to make fun of him, that he is weak and utterly inferior. But God is not mocked. And we are led to the writing on the wall. So we get to verse five, and it says, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. As the king saw the hand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote, then the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. It's like a horror movie. I mean, how does a hand appear and that's all that appeared. God can do that. And so Belshazzar sees this human hand with no arm writing on the wall. And the handwriting leads to this message that is up there, and it leads to horror. And the humbling of Belshazzar is somewhat humorous. As I said, this is this Israelite tract to nourish Israelite faith. I mean, you, you think as they're reading us, and literally the text says, the knots of his joints were loosened. And so as Ian DeGuid says, this does not mean that his legs gave way as most English translations render it, but rather that he lost control of his bodily functions with a wet patch underneath his chair, okay? With his knees knocked and having peed his pants, he screams for help, okay? That's what happened, okay? In spite of present appearances, God is in control. So the wise men then and Daniel get the call. So we got the ball and the goal, we got the, and now we have the wall, and now we have the call. And the king called loudly. I mean, he is screaming. Bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. I mean, does that sound like deja vu? I mean, every time they get brought in to give an interpretation, how do they do so far? In chapter two and chapter four, they, 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 these guys are bimbos. They can't interpret anything. They're supposed to be wise, but they're really very dumb. So all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, and most people think it's the queen mother, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And listen to how she talks about Daniel. She said nothing but praise for him. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because in excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. I mean, he's so, the king is so uh, oblivious that he doesn't even know who this Daniel is. And so he brings him in, and Daniel's brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, notice how he belittles him and doesn't speak well of Daniel at all. He says, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom, I, whom, whom the king my father brought from, from Judah. 
I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and the enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing, have made known to me its interpretation, but they couldn't show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and, you, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I'll read the writing to the king and make known to the king the interpretation. And so you can see here that there's kind of not much affection for each other, um, both, uh, you know, Daniel, he just gets straight to the point, whereas the other speeches he gave, he had such affection for the kings and he's praising them. Here he's just straight to the point and he actually is gonna give a sermon before he actually gives the interpretation. And so he tells him, uh, he begins to rebuke the king here and he says, <clears throat> verse 18, O king, the God most high gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, Knowledge isn't enough, is it? You knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. And then his presence, from his presence, the ham was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So God gives Daniel the interpretation, and he gives him these three words that mean numbered, weighed, divided. You've been numbered, numbered for emphasis. Your days are numbered, your time is up. You've been weighed in the scales and found wanting, lacking. And now this kingdom's gonna be taken from you and divided by the Medes and Persians. And he's saying, you knew all this. You, you knew what happened to your father. And you didn't humble your heart at all. Matter of fact, you were, you've been arrogant. You did stuff your Nebuchadnezzar never dared do. Nebuchadnezzar never brought out these vessels and drank from them. <clears throat> so sometimes we have all the knowledge we need and more. 
But this knowledge here is being suppressed. God is not being honored. God is being mocked. And I would say we do some of the similar things today. When people say we thank our lucky stars, we knock on wood, we ascribe glory and worship to something that has been made, and we think it's funny. Big hit country song right now is called My Church. Big hit by Maren Morris. This is what she says the church is. You guys heard this song? I mean, it was sung at this year's music awards or whatever. She said, I've cussed on a Sunday, I've cheated and lied, I've fallen down from grace a few too many times, but I find holy redemption when I put this car in drive, roll the windows down and turn up the dial. Can I get a hallelujah, can I get an amen? Feels like the Holy Ghost running through you when I play the highway FM. I find my soul revival singing every single verse. Yeah, I guess that's my church. When Hank brings the sermon and Cash leads the choir, it gets my cold, cold heart burning hotter than a ring of fire. When this wonderful world gets heavy and I need, need my escape, I just keep the wheels rolling, radio scrolling, until my sins wash away. Can I get a hallelujah? Can I get an amen? Feels like the Holy Ghost running through you when I play the Highway FM. I find my soul revival singing every single verse. Yeah, I guess that's my church. He said, come on, they're just joking. They're just having fun. They're having fun at the expense of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who suffered and died for our sins to give us forgiveness of sins. That the Holy Spirit would come then when we receive him and yield to him as Lord and Savior. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. For the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I wouldn't want to be in the car with her. Would you want to be in that car? I'd be afraid that car would be struck down. But would you be listening to that in your car? That's scary. That we would just rejoice that, oh, great, my sins are being washed away as I'm listening to music. I mean, that's just blatant idolatry and blasphemy. It's like drinking from the holy vessels. And what we see here in this text is the immediacy of Babylon's fall. Belshazzar gave the command. Daniel's clothed in purple, gets the chain of gold put around his neck, proclamations made about him. He's made third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. What they didn't know was that the Persian army would dig a canal and they would reroute the Euphrates River into a nearby lake. And as the river is draining into this lake, and as it comes down, this, the high depth of these, the waters recede, and the commando units easily went under the walls, under the gates, for a serious surprise attack. He who exalts himself will be humbled. He who exalts himself will be exalted. He who humbles himself will be exalted. So what's the lesson for us from this? I think the lesson is so obvious that sometimes we miss it. One of the biggest themes of the whole Bible is judgment. 
170 references to the word judgment in the Bible. And I didn't even get to judged or judge or all of those. It's hundreds and hundreds. From Genesis to Revelation, we see God's judgment. The flood in Noah's day was a judgment. And when Noah and his sons were shut into the ark and it rained for 150 days and it came up and every living creature was killed, judgment that God brought. When the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, it was God's judgment. When Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt, it was God's judgment. When the people of Israel made a golden calf and then the plague came down and killed many because it was God's judgment for their false worship. When the earth opened and swallowed up Korah in his rebellion and numbers, it was God's judgment. When God struck down Nadab and Abihu for offering up strange fire to the Lord and are instantly struck down, that was God's judgment. When God killed Uzzah for steadying the ark and thought he was doing God a favor, that was God's judgment. When God struck down Belshazzar in Babylon, in an instant, it was God's judgment. This is not something that's just in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. When God killed Ananias and Sapphira on the spot for lying to the apostles and lying to God and to the Holy Spirit, it was God's judgment. When Herod was praised in Acts 12, and we're told on the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last, Acts 12. God also brings judgment upon his, his church. We are told of the church in Corinth that some were abusing the Lord's Supper, were getting drunk and not considering the rest of the body of Christ and not waiting for one another. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So the Bible says to us, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there's peace and security. Sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pangs come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The Bible says there'll be scoffers, those who don't believe in this judgment to come. I was in Barnes and Nobles recently and picked up the latest biography on Bruce Springsteen. It's one of the hot sellers up front on display. And I just thought, I'll, I'll just do a super scroll through, find out what does he believe? Well, I found it. And this is it. As funny as it sounds, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. He remains one of my fathers, though as with my own father, I no longer believe in his godly power. I deeply believe in his love, his ability to save, but not to damn. Enough of that. Well, the boss is in trouble when he meets the real boss. He's in big trouble. The Bible's clear. It's destined for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Who's the judge? It's not us. The judge is Jesus Christ himself. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who've done good to a resurrection of life and those who've done evil to a resurrection of judgment. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. And so who's the Lord going to judge? Well, the Bible's real clear on that. It's every one of us. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, 1 Samuel 2.10. Well, how's he going to judge? Well, we're told he's going to, at the set time that I appoint, he says, I will judge with equity, Psalm 75, 2. Psalm 96, he will judge the peoples with equity. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And it will be Jesus himself who's doing the judging. He is the stump from, from Jesse, the branch, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And it says, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ear hears. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And so you say, well, what am I being judged for? Well, Ecclesiastes says this is the whole duty of man, to fear God and to keep his commandments. God's going to bring every deed into judgment and every single thing, whether good or evil. Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified and by your words, you'll be condemned. And Jesus says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And James says, don't grumble against one another because we'll be judged for that. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door, James 5, 9. And Hebrews says, let the marriage bed be honored among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral, the fornicator, the one who has sex before marriage and the adulteress, the one who has sex outside of marriage. That's what he's judging. Our words, our grumbling, our sexual immorality. I'm sharing all this to show you why you need to appreciate Advent. Because the Bible talks about a judgment. Jesus says in Matthew 25, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not receive me naked and did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And you say, nobody talks like this today. That's probably true. Everything I hear about the world to come is light and peace and good things, certainly not judgment. But Amos says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. So how should I respond to the coming judgment? Well, several things. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross, the psalmist says. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My soul trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. Psalm 119, 119, and 120. That's what we need to do. We need to tremble for fear and be afraid of his judgments. Why don't people fear the judgment? Ecclesiastes 8 says, because the sentence against an evil man is not executed speedily, the hearts of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So we keep doing it. 
Well, what should we do? We should repent and believe. The Bible says the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. We need to repent, and we need to believe. The apostles' message was they had been commanded to preach to the people and testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead, and to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You see, Jesus came as the lamb so we wouldn't have to face him as the lion. He's coming back as the lion and he is bringing judgment, but he came first to bear the judgment with his hands spread out on a cross, enduring punishment that we would repent because he was raised from the dead and now he's calling us to believe in him and yield to him. He's the king. This is why Advent is important because he's come to take our judgment. Listen to Romans 8, 1 to 4. Here's the gospel. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Meaning you could never save yourself by your own flesh. You're too weak and you're too sinful. So God did it himself by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus was condemned at a cross in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met where? In us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. That's why Christmas is so beautiful. It's not until, you know, it's like you don't want to go and, and, and go to the doctor and have, your, or have your tooth drilled out unless you need a root canal, and now you're in screaming pain. Man, the dentist all of a sudden, he's wonderful. Jesus becomes wonderful when you realize there's a sentence of death hanging over your life, that, that I am worthy of hell. I am worthy of judgment, and Jesus took my judgment for me. He came down to do that so I could go up. Have you yielded your life to him? He is coming back as the Lord and Savior. Just as he came before and people were longing for the Messiah, he's coming back. You can be sure because he's promised it. And even as we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded that as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's prepare our hearts to meet him. Prepare to meet your God. Let's pray. Lord God, we see our need for a Savior. Our words are sinful. Our hearts are sinful. Our actions are sinful. Everything we've done is full of sin, a fountain of sin, a river and an ocean. We are despicable in and of ourselves. And we would think that we're somehow going to present ourselves to you and figure it out. Lord, you have come as a sin bearer to be that lamb that would take away the sins of the world. May we each here personally do business with you in putting our trust in you and your salvation. May we follow you as Lord and Savior.
no longer ourselves. We ask in Jesus' name that you would give us the strength. Help us to trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.